Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So, um, Ian mentioned my name's Amanda Brock. I'm also a lawyer. I work in a law firm, but my open experience has come from about six years of working primarily around open source software um, from 2008 until the end of last year, end of 2012. I was general counsel at Canonical. Canonical's a commercial company that are, I suppose leverages and commercialises the Ubuntu operating system, the Linux-based operating system. So having moved into private practice, I suppose sharing the love in some ways, one of the things I wanted to do was work for multiple companies around open, whether that's open software, open medicine, open anything. And that's really where my practice area has developed. Um, the first question I guess I ask anybody who comes to see a lawyer and who's interested in doing something open is do you want to make money do you really want to make this open and the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive but I think it's really important as a start point that any individual who's looking at a business that's going to involve open source software or open something else understands what they're getting themselves into and understands the, the impact on their business plan, the impact on their options over time once they've made something that many businesses would regard as their secret source, the thing that they make money of, open. So it's really important if you are looking at either generating profit or generating some sort of financing through this open product that you have a business plan that would allow you to share allow you still to generate revenue and that you won't end up a couple of years down the line having shared all your great ideas and your great technology your great data bitter and twisted because someone else has come along and taken your stuff and used it better than you have and has actually been able to make money and it happens so I think the very first thing to do is sit down and think what am I doing here do I need to make money do I want to make money if I need to make money is that to sort of pay for our own excellence? Is that simply a way of funding us going forwards? Are we really just a project that's looking at sustainability? Or are we actually in this to create proper revenue and profit over a long period of time? And that always begs the question, can you actually really generate revenue from something open? Um, I mentioned that I worked for Canonical. One of our main competitors, you probably all know Red Hat, Red Hat was founded in 93. It's the first billion-dollar revenue open-source company. Um, and clearly, you can make money from open-source, from open, if you know what you're doing and you have a structure that works. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking through sort of some ideas around business models, a little bit about contracts. I've got roughly 20 minutes, which isn't really enough to get into depth on any one little bit that I'm going to talk to you about today. So it's very high-level. When we get to the end, I'm happy to have discussion and questions and you know, focus on what people in the room want to know about. So commercialising open, before you get to your licence, you have to work out your business plan, and it's a bit chicken and egg. So I just wanted to run through some of the kinds of licences that might be applicable to you if you're looking at open. So open source, a um, bit bizarre for someone to say open source, the traditional open. It's a disruptive force, it's new, it's modern. However, compared to some of the other areas of open, it is actually quite established in a marketplace. So generally, as Ian mentioned, you'll use one of the standard licenses. They tend to be Free Software Foundation approved or OSI approved. You may well want to use one of those as your contract definition later on of what FOSS or open source is. 
Um, Ian mentioned GPL2, which I think is the biggest definitely by terms of um, software to which it applies to. I'm not sure actually in terms of usage that it, it still pans out that way. And particularly if you narrow that down to commercial usage. So something like which license you choose could seriously impact your software business. GPLv2 has copyleft that Ian's explained. It doesn't necessarily cause problems. There are usually technical solutions that a business can put in place to make sure that their proprietary code is ring-fenced, that the viral effect won't necessarily be an issue. But some businesses perceive risk. So if you're a project or an organisation that wants to generate revenue, will a particular licence choice actually stop you having uptake? Even if the concerns about the licence choice you're making seem insane to you. Even if you think the lawyers are wrong, will it impact it? So I've just put four other areas there that I personally am working in. So open data, you may well use a Creative Commons license. There's a really good explanation of that on the ODI website, as you would expect. Uh, flags which of the Creative Commons licenses are considered open in that context. And also, I think it has a link to the Open Government license, which is one of the main UK open data licenses. Open hardware, Tapper or CERN. Um, open hardware is sharing your specs, sharing how to build something in the hardware sector. A little bit newer, a lot newer really than open source. Um, I don't really want to get into which license is the right license, but if you are thinking of building a business on this, it's really important that you understand the license. I have one client who would like to have an open hardware business but they actually want to fund the long-term business, which is very charity-focused, by having a commercial entity having an exclusive licence. So we're looking at the open hardware licences and wondering if we can add an exclusion in there that might work to allow non-commercial usage as much as you like, because we want to be open, we want to share, but to hold back that commercial element so that they can still finance the longevity of the business. So again, you can see another kind of open where the, the, the license choice and how the license is going to be put in place is really going to impact the business plan and vice versa. Open Database, ODBL, which is from the Open Knowledge Foundation, is probably the first port of call. And Open Medicine. Um, I've been asked more than once recently, what do I mean by Open Medicine? Um, to me, it's a very broad, sweeping title, definition, and if you look it up, you'll get all sorts of different um, responses from Google or whoever you, you search on. I guess to me, it's an ability to be able to share information, so possibly open data, processes, uh, platforms, possibly open databases, and um, best practices in a way that doesn't really happen, and maybe tools as well, actually, in a way that doesn't really happen at the moment very often in medicine. And it doesn't happen because... Some of the data that you're sharing is sensitive. Some of the data you're sharing is individual's data where they have to consent to its usage in that way. And some of the data that you've got is based on that and is research information or belongs to universities or pharmas, whoever it is that's commissioned research. And I have a couple of clients that I'm working with now who are trying to build platforms where they'll share that kind of data um, or processes so that the data can be used openly by research. Because what happens in medicine, as I understand it currently, is you end up with lots of silos. And lots of people doing the same kind of work, repeating processes, um, repeating tests, and not being able to share the data. Um, there's, a, there's some really good books on sort of taking control of medicine and how individuals can do that at the moment as well. 
And I think that will all impact on the openness, the, the individual having more and more say and more and more control over their data and how that's used by the medical profession. So if you're going to commercialise open, you're going to have to think about what it is you want to do as a business plan and what the licence that you need is, how you might need to tailor that licence if there isn't one in the marketplace that's suitable for you. And as Ian said, think about what the licence is giving you. So if you are actually the owner, and it's really important that you establish that you either own or you have the right to whatever it is you're licensing. Um, I'll come at the very end if I've got time just a little bit about communities and getting rights. But once you know you've got the right, nobody else can use your IP unless you give them a, a right to do so. You have to give them some form of license. That will allow them to use it and probably to create derivatives. Depending on the kind of open it is, there may be requirements that it's at no cost. There may not be requirements that it's at no cost. Although if something is freely available without charge, it's hard to see why anybody else would pay for it in a different context. Um, with most licences, there are obligations not only to use the, the work product that's open on the licence terms, but generally for attribution. Again, if you look at the ODI's guide, it tells you very clearly and very well how to attribute open data under open data licences, and it's not very different across the board. With something like software, you'll have notices and the headers that carry the copyrights from one user to the next, from the creator onwards. Um, and you might also have to put uh, additional attributions in as you um, confirm the license that the, the code was granted to you on. And Ian's mentioned copyleft and the cascade effect that can have and how that can be viral. Um, if you are looking particularly at software, then the, there's a lot of information out there. The FSF will give you some good guidance, OSI gives you some good guidance, and of course QLegal if you've got specific questions. So when somebody has given you that license, that open license, you, can, you have to remember you can only use it within those license terms. It's not carte blanche to do exactly what you want with the data you receive, and you're not giving that the other way either if you're sharing something on an open basis. So to get to that decision as to the kind of license, to go back to where I started, think about your business models. Red Hat's been really successful. They have what I would call a subscription business model. They have two distributions, one community-based, Fedora, completely free, and one Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is charged for. Now, the actual RHEL you can go and download. You can also download CentOS with a stripped-out version of it with no trademarks. But if you want the updates, you have to buy Red Hat Support Package, which is really a subscription package, and it includes both the updates for the commercial product and support services. Canonical is a different model, Ubuntu, one version, no enterprise version, single version for community and enterprise, and their model is not to charge for updates. Updates are, and the website says, always will be free. So what you buy from an organisation like that is purely support. They don't have the same hook to clutch to clients that Red Hat does. So their enterprise offerings are quite different. Um, for most software companies, engineering will be a key service that they can build the commercial models on. I guess that engineering is also expertise. So whatever your open product is, you would hope that the people releasing the product are going to be the ones who know it best and can most easily offer services around it and the best quality services. So it tends to be that people who want to commercialise open will find ways of selling that, whether it's consultancy, 
whether it's support, whether it's um, building add-ons or enhancements to whatever it is that they've, they've distributed. There's also quite a lot of people working on freemium models where something is distributed on a free and open basis. Once it's out there in the marketplace, it can't be taken back but because of the license. But what they will do is they'll have a, an improved version, not quite the subscription model that Red Hat uses, but they'll have an improved version there which you can purchase, which will be the bells and whistles version. Now, that freemium to premium, you may find the premium model from 2012 is released and becomes the free version in 2014 as they move forward uh, with the, the version control and the updates and the, the improvements. That's quite a, an established model around open source at least. And I haven't put it on there, but there's all these sort of creative models coming out too. So I have one client who to fund an open source project runs an HR consultancy that specialises in recruitment for HR for um, open source developers and he set up a company which takes the recruitment business work into the company takes the revenue and then the profits invested back in the main project that they sponsor so it's not a, in any way a traditional model of funding software but it's a creative way to use skills around it to keep paying for the excellence that that software package that they believe creates so as I said, understand the model and choose a license that works with the model. Um, remember, your license won't necessarily give away all your rights. It might give away your rights in that particular product, but you have something similar, you have something different that you still hold the rights in. Even with the product that you're licensing, if it's purely a copyright license and you happen to hold patents or trademarks, they may not be granted within the license. Increasingly in open source, it's necessary to find a trademark license as well from the grantor of the rights if you want to use their brand. So you see the Red Hat CentOS example where CentOS strips out Red Hat's trademark and redistributes the, the operating system. You can look at something like Firefox. Um, in Firefox Mobile OS, their trademark policy will allow community usage of the Firefox um, mark. It will allow usage if you're redistributing the Firefox Mobile OS. But if you start to make changes, it will only allow you to go so far. The reasoning behind that is that the trademark is a brand of excellence, a brand of origin, and they want to keep control and hold of that so they feel that it's possible to be free and open without giving everything away. And that's obviously going to impact your business model because you might be charging or you might not be charging a, a revenue for that trademark usage. You might have to manage the administration of that trademark so there might be a cost for you in that. And all of that with your licensing goes into your, your commercial contracts and how you run and manage your business. So from a contract perspective, it's really clear in the contracts and really important that you, you make clear what it is that's been delivered under the commercial arrangements you put in place for the business. If you're distributing work product on an open basis, the license for that work product is the open license. You don't need to put another license into the commercial agreement. Often it's a problem if you do because it will add different conditions and contradict the open license. And you see it happening all the time. So what you need to be very clear about is that you've listed out what it is that's been delivered under the contract. You may want to cross-reference other open products that the client is using, the customer is using, which are freely available. Or you may even be delivering those to the client and just be putting a list and a list of the open licenses into your agreement. The key thing when you're negotiating, once you've established what it is that is in the agreement being delivered, services, software, data, is risk. 
and there will be a perceived risk in anybody paying you around the open piece. And often that means it's worth keeping the open deliverable if you're not if you're delivering services around it rather than the deliverable itself in the contract, completely separate. So the open tends to be distributed on a free basis and the distributor will not take any risk in that open, will not take IP warranties, liabilities, indemnities, because they're not being paid to take a risk. They're sharing something out of goodwill, out of a, a sense of the greater good generally, and that doesn't mean that they should be liable in court for someone else's usage. So when you get to a commercial situation, if you are not being paid for that open or free piece, then it's perfectly reasonable to try to negotiate and decide if you can't negotiate whether you actually want to work with that client, that you won't be liable for the open piece in the picture. Um, you'll find companies who are used to dealing with something like open source may well be receptive to not looking for IP warranties or indemnities, and the license terms themselves won't give them or will specifically exclude them. And there's no reason really for you to take on more even if you're being paid in a commercial contract unless you're being paid for that particular open piece, in which case you really have to think through what it is. Now, I'm quite conscious of time here, it's, and I speak fast anyway, so I hope I'm not losing you all. Um, very quickly, once you've got your business model, how are you going to commercialise it? You put a contract in place, put multiple contracts in place. Who is that contract going to be with? If you're an open project, you might have no infrastructure, you might not want to make money, but you'll still need some sort of entity to open a bank account, to have contracts for hosting, whatever it happens to be. So you need to make a decision. Again, I think the Q Legal uh, services can help you with this. But whether you're going to be a company, a partnership, a sole trader, what you're going to be. Um, often with open comes this sense that you are doing something for the greater good. So you may want to set up a charity, comes with a lot of administration, a lot of restrictions, and it may not be the best entity to hold IP. So you may want to look at what the Americans would call a foundation. Um, foundations tend to be very, very regulated also. There is something, I think they started in 2012, Community Interest Company, which is a standard limited company in the UK, or a company limited by guarantee, which has an extra layer of regulation in that it has to have a specific purpose for the community interest, which is approved by a regulator. That purpose can be very wide. It doesn't have to be geographically defined. Um, those companies are administered and run generally with a little bit of extra work because of the community interest, like a normal company in the UK. <coughs> and they can hold IP. So it means that you might get away with having a single company that's doing something for the greater good, the community interest, but also can make profit and employ people and leverage that infrastructure. For people who don't go down that route, they'll often end up with two entities, one that will be the open piece that will hold the open information, data, whatever it's going to be, and a separate one that will commercialise, and that will just create more administration for you. So I think this is my last slide. Um, if you are looking at commercialising open source, something to really bear in mind is that, I said open source, open anything, um, you may well end up with two stakeholder groups, two communities, one being what, in open source at least, would really be called the community, the developers who contribute. And you may also end up with stakeholders who are commercial and they have very different interests and they'll want to be dealt with and they'll want to see things in quite a different way. So there's a lot of work that goes into community liaison, infrastructure, making sure that if you're taking contributions, those come through a gatekeeper, that the, there's some form of uh, corporate governance around that, whether it's a contribution agreement, whether it's um, a code of conduct, whether you have a license from them. 
So those kind of things have to be considered and you need to make sure that you've got any consents away from IP if you're starting to use personal data. Um, and those will then impact the relations you have with commercial contributors and commercial receivers of whatever it is that's open. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.